it works. Well, it's good to see everyone that's made it out this evening and or this morning, whichever one we're at. And I uh, pray the Lord will bless our time together. Uh, I went ahead and I put up uh, several displays uh, for us to take a look at, uh, mainly because I want to show you a little bit about where we're uh, where we're going forward and how closely related to what we read in the book of Genesis is to the book of Genesis. But before we begin, let's take our Bibles and let's go ahead and let's start. I'll get over here in just a minute. There we are. Let's go over to the book of Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to go to verse 8 once again, and we want to read that one verse together. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. Notice again it says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she hath made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So as we be continue on with our Bible study, we want us to take a look at everything that is written in regards to Babylon. Now understand this is that uh, it, this is not a popular teaching. Uh, there, is, there are so many things that are out there, even amongst our brethren, where it just seems like we can't even decide or agree upon anything. And so with that in mind, I want us to understand the things that are written in the scriptures today and spend a little bit of time to make sure that we have a great understanding of everything that goes on. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to ask him to guide and bless us as we study together today. Father, again, we want to thank you for the blessings that you uh, give to us. Uh, we know that we're small in number again today, Father, but that's okay. We know that the impact of the message will go forward, and we also believe with all of our heart that, Lord, you're going to bless this church, and that you're going to use this as you see fit. Lord, if we do not believe in those blessings, whether the increase in numerical numbers or even in the spiritual application, then, Father, we would be uh, very much wrong in all of our desires. Help us then, dear Father, to guide and to know your presence and to also do those things which you would have for us to do. So guide us and lead us. Help us in this day, for it's in Christ we pray. Amen. I want to share something with you all uh, that I, I met a couple uh, this past week, and they, they stopped me and they said, uh, do we know you? Now, any time that someone asks you that question, the first thing you want to do is, is your picture up on the bulletin board or is it on some uh, wall poster that you don't know anything about? But uh, the reality is I haven't done anything like that to demand that I would be put up on a post office wall. And we got to talking a little bit about where they come from. They live in Catlisburg, which is just across the way. And uh, come to find out that they had been uh, in a church and they had been studying so many things that we're going to highlight today. But there is a rut that can come in. And, and the reality is we've got to be careful that we don't just become part of a rut. Now, a rut is nothing more than a, a ditch where both ends have been kicked out. And so, or a grave that's where both ends have been kicked out. And the reality is, is that we can just spin our tires. And one of the things that I notice about so many churches that are in enveloping or that they have really laid on hold of the doctrines of grace or what we call the tulip doctrines, they want to rehearse those over and over and again. But may I point this out to you, we have 66 books that are in this one Bible. 
even in the 66 books of this one Bible, we have so much that is there. We have the, the creation account. We have the uh, account of the fall of man. We have the account of the flood. We have everything. We're, we haven't even left the book of Genesis. And we continue on with the rise of the judges and the rise of the kings with the fall of the judges, the fall of the kings, and we can go on and on and on until we hit the book of Revelation. And when we get to this place in, the, in Revelation, we see that finally the things that were mentioned in the book of Genesis have taken away. But I want us to think about this for a moment. And if you'll notice, one of the things that I put at the very beginning, this was last week when I first started my studies, we find that there is a, a great misunderstanding amongst us about the decisions of man versus the, the power of God. Now, can God prevent us from doing any wrongdoing? He can, absolutely. We know he can. But it is our responsibility as human beings to bring our flesh under subjection. And that's why the scripture teaches us to become overcomers. Now, I want to give you an example. We, I've put in here about what we believe about the two doctrines. And really, when we go back in, we can go everything from the book of Genesis, and we see all these things that come into place. First of all, we talk about the total depravity of man. Now, I understand this. I may be morally a good man, but without Christ, I am bound for an eternal hell, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I know that about me. I also know this, is that when Adam fell, he took all of mankind with him. He also brought a curse that was uh, required upon this earth so that the earth would not yield its betterment force. And so for that reason, I know that I'm totally depraved. At the same time, we also go to the next part, which is the unconditional election. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. There's, there's, a, there's a push right now by so many in this world where they want to say, well, do you realize that you, you have to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior or accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or you'll never be, a sa you'll, or you'll never be saved? The reality is, is that unless Christ invokes that salvation upon us, Unless Christ brings that to that knowledge, we will never, one of us, go to him and say, Lord, save me. That takes that unconditional election, which we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, how that literally we have been called before the foundations of the world. Once again, it shows the power of God. The next part that we see is the what we call limited atonement or particular redemption. And the reality is, is that the scope and the power of Jesus Christ is not limited in the number that can be saved. We understand that. But his blood was never wasted. His blood was poured out upon those that he would redeem. And so because of that, we understand that the limit is who will be redeemed, not the limit of his power. We also speak of irresistible grace. And when I talk about the irresistible grace, the moment that I see Jesus Christ for whom he is, then I want that grace. I want that for myself. But it takes the working of the Holy Spirit, as we read in the book of Romans, to combine with the relationship that is with our spirit to show us that we have not only the need of Jesus Christ, but make us willing, as we read in the book of Psalms, in the day of his appearance to, be the, to accept him or to receive him as our Lord and Savior. 
That is the responsibility of irresistible grace. One of the great songs we sing is Amazing Grace. And yet, if very few people know the great story of Jonathan Newton, how that uh, he had weathered a tremendous storm. And afterwards, one of the great men, or one of the sailors, came up to him and said, that was a masterful bit of sailing that you did, uh, Sir John, you know, for all that you did. And he goes, I didn't do anything. Had it not been the grace of God, we would have all perished at the same time. And the last we, we look at, and this is the one that we have to be so careful of. We love the preservation of the saints, or the, if you will, the perseverance of the saints. One of the areas that I see in my own life is that I must have a determinate counsel of will within myself to say, I want to continue on after the things of God. I have been a sinner in my life, and I sin every moment of every day. I understand that. But understand this also. I have been preserved in Christ. When Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have lost none of them, that included me. And one of the areas we need to understand is that he never leaves us or forsakes us. So then why do we find it so particularly involved that we would come to this part of Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and see the importance of the fall of Babylon? To get a better understanding of this, I want you to see something that I, I think is going to help us. Let's go back, if you will, if you will, hold your place here, and let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 49. Now, I want you to see this for a moment. We're going to get to this area. In Genesis chapter 49, we hear the promise of Messiah and the given of the promise of Messiah. Now, go all the way down, if you will, to verse 8. And this is the promise that was given to Judah. Now, we all know that, that Reuben had made the determination, well, if I don't return, then kill my two sons. Like, that's going to help. But Judah said in the offering, he said, understand this, I will be surety. Not my sons, not anyone else. I will be surety for the lab. And so the thing that we find here in verse 8, the application of the blessing that is coming from Jacob to him is in this. And Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be at the neck of thine enemies, and thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Now this is the promise that is given about Messiah coming through the lineage of Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. Thy son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched his lion as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter, this is again the promise. Jesus Christ shall rule and he shall be king over all creation. He shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, meaning when Jesus Christ comes in great peace. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people be, binding his fold upon the binding his foal upon the vine, and the ass is called upon the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes with the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be uh, red with wine and his teeth white as milk. Once again, this is a great promise that is going to be there. Now we could go into every aspect of the promises that go into the birth or the coming of Christ and we can see all of these things come together. In fact, one of the things we find in the book of Exodus Let's go to chapter 12, if you will, for the book of Exodus. 
we find that in the book of Exodus chapter 12 that there was nothing in the law that was given to us that gave any hope of salvation, only condemnation. I love what one person said. If, in fact, the, the day of atonement in which the uh, scapegoat was released into the wilderness and the blood was anointed into the, uh, the tabernacle upon the Ark of the Covenant, for that one split second, if all the sins had been taken away, how long before the sins would return? Now think about that for a moment. So imagine that I am clean and I want to keep myself and I want to make sure that I, I abide by all that is holy in Christ. And I know all the example that was there with the Passover lamb and how that I was going to be hidden by the blood and the blood was going to cleanse me. How long could I keep myself before I would finally fail? Now let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever woken up on the wrong side of the bed? And you don't know why you're angry, you don't know why you're upset, and you want to snap at people and things of this nature. Maybe that's a common reality. Do you realize that the moment that you have woken up on the wrong side of the bed, or you go in the wrong thoughts in your mind, or whatever, those things stay with you, and unless you are forgiven of Christ, then guess what? You have already committed a sin that now brings you into complete condemnation. Well, in chapter 12, the book of Exodus, this was going to be the preparation for the release out of Egypt. This is where we're looking at over on the Egyptian land. To where out of Egypt these people would come out. Now let's go down, if you will, to verse, um, verse 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Now once again, this is the month of Abib. This is the beginning of the year, if you will, for the children of Israel, the beginning of months. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of souls, every man according to his eating, shall you make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You should take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Once again, the typology is that Jesus Christ would be the perfect lamb. He would be, notice it had to be a male, it had to be no blemish, had to be perfect in every way. Verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day. One of the things I tell people is if you look at the number 10, so you've got the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, five days, you had this lamb separated by itself. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that many years later, Dan, David would create what is called the sheep coat, which was outside of Bethlehem Ephratah. And so in that sheep coat, they would watch the lambs that were going to be willing and worthy of sacrifice for the events that were going to be coming up by the high priest. And so they would watch that lamb in particular and make sure that there was no blemish in it, that it didn't have a schism. One of the reasons that we see this is that everything had to be perfect. Now I wonder how many of us have ever considered the beginning with John chapter 12 it says six days before Passover, Jesus Christ died before the Passover day. 
And do you realize that there are five days that are given to where we can give an account of Jesus Christ for those five days to where he proved himself worthy to be the sacrificial lamb of God, the almighty lamb of God. Verse 7 also goes in this, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts and the houses wherein they shall eat it. Now there's a, a huge push right now. They said, well, we really know that Jesus Christ died like this. We don't know how Jesus died. But most unlikely, he died on a cross. Why do we say that he died like this? Because it matches the rest of Scripture. The two side posts and the lintel means that there would be the blood above and the two blood and the hands where they would have been stretched out at the doorway. They would have literally been the, the place where the blood would have come down. Now, we it's like this, is that uh, I was talking to a man yesterday, and he said, well, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ was crucified the other way. It doesn't matter how we, we see these particular things. We really don't know. But the reality is, is that when Jesus Christ was crucified, he matched every indication of Scripture, every little thing. In verse 8 it says, And you shall eat of the flesh that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread with, the bitter, er with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, and his head and his legs and his puritans thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain till the morning, which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat of it with your loins girded, and your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, you're going to eat it quickly. You're going to stay up all night. You're going to be prepared. And when the final decree comes to get out, you've got to be ready to go. Now, here's the reason that I bring this up. When Jesus Christ returns, there will be no saints left behind. Now, how many of us are ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And how many of us are scared to death of his coming? Now, the thing that really bothers me is that there's a lot of people that they're afraid of the return of Jesus Christ. Reality is, is that we don't know when he's going to return, but if we become more comfortable with this earth and the things that are on this earth, we're going to literally hold on to these things here. But if we're more comfortable with the things that are, are, are prepared for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be anticipating and expecting. Now, I understand this, is that there are a lot of people that they, they take a disagreement, and they're going to battle us no matter what. They want to say, well, you know, the first person to pen, uh, this was a, a woman back in the 1800s, and she literally wrote down everything about what we believe and, and so on and so forth. Well, I don't know if she did or not. I wasn't there. And I'm not endorsing what she writes. I'm endorsing what we believe as a congregation. Now, there's one of three positions. Either Christ is coming or he's not. Christ is going to come either before, during, or after the tribulation or not. And there are so many people that they want to hold on and they say, well, things are getting better and better and better. And yet the reality is things are getting worse and worse and worse. Now, why is it that we're seeing things getting worse, worse, and worse? Because the reality is, this world is preparing for Jesus Christ to come, and when he comes, there, you know, the, the scripture says, will he find faith upon this earth? Well, he's going to find faith, I believe, because the church is going to exist. Now, how strong the church is going to be, I don't know. 
But the reality is, is that the more that I see these things, the more that I want to anticipate the things that are given. Now, the, the first question I had approached me was this. Well, if all who's going to be a witness? Who's going to preach the gospel? Well, we have two examples of where that's going to occur. Let's go to the book of Genesis for a moment. And in the book of Genesis, chapter 5, we find this great lineage that uh, speaks of Adam's line. And in Adam's line, going down to verse 21, and it says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred uh, three hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. And Enoch walked with God and was not, meaning he did not die, not yet, for God took him. Now, why do we believe that Enoch is going to be one of those? Well, let's go to the book of Jude. And in the book of Jude, we're going to go to chapter 1, which is only one chapter to begin with. But in Jude, we want to go down to verse 14. And notice what it says. This is the message that Enoch preached. And isn't it funny that it, even though it was distributed and shown to us in Genesis chapter 5, when he, uh, that he was not because he walked with God. We have to wait till Jude, which is the very last book of the Bible, to find out what he was really preaching. Look at verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied to these, saying, Behold, the Lamb cometh with ten thousand of his saints. When is that going to occur? Believe it or not, Revelation chapter 19. To execute judgment on all them, unto all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now that is the message that Enoch had to distribute and one that we need to be aware of as well. Who is then the second witness that we also believe in? Let's go to, if you will, Second Kings chapter 2. And I realize that I'm, I'm repeating myself in many ways, but I want to make sure that we have this before we go on. In 2 Kings chapter 2, if we go down to verse 8, notice what it said. And Elisha took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided thither and thither, and so that the two went over. Now that's Elijah. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now this is what we find from the message of Elisha to Elijah. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou shalt see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on, and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire, and the horse and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, to two pieces. Once again, we also think that Elijah is going to be the second person that is going to come down and that he is going to bring the message. Well, a lot of people want to refer to Matthew chapter 17, 
where we find Moses and Elijah are demonstrated or shown to the uh, other apostles, and literally because of the great work which they did while they were upon the earth. And remember this, is that it was announced by, I think it was Peter, he said, let us build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Christ, one for Elijah. And then suddenly the other two men were gone, and what did we hear from heaven? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. This is Jesus Christ. The other two they will die later on. So one of the things that I've pointed out to so many people is that when at no time upon this earth have we ever seen that the message of Christ is not going to be delivered. And it's going to be delivered by the 144,000. It's going to be delivered by the two witnesses. And there are going to be many souls that are going to come to Christ because of their two witnesses. However, there is a charlatan in the mix. This leads us at now to Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. I want you to hear this again. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why do I believe... <coughs> That Babylon is in the core from it. So, Brother Joe, if you will, go ahead and let's take a look at the next slide. Once again, if you would like to have copies of these slides, I'll try to make them for you. Now, remember I told you all that the Tower of Babel, which we read about in Genesis chapter 11, was most unlikely a ziggurat. Now, they have, we don't know where it was, anything else, but understand, and if you look at the very top, you can see that they're continuing to build. See it up here? And so you had these different layers that came up. It was almost like a staircase that went up. And there was one staircase that led to the very top. Now the reason that we believe this is because there are two things that happen out of ancient Babel or Babylon as it comes in. And this is where I want you to see this. And these are images that I found, and they're quite available to you on the Internet. So go ahead and go to the next slide, Brother Joe. On the next slide, we find these ziggurats. This is the ziggurat of Ur, Ur the Chaldees. This is where, this is where Abram came out of. How many of you all knew that there was a ziggurat there? This was where, and many people believe that this was the Tower of Babel. I, while I, I have leanings, one way or the other, I don't particularly think that this is that particular ziggurat. But notice the staircase. You had multiple staircases that led to the top, and there they would actually perform human sacrifices. This one is also in India. Notice again the ziggurat of India. How many of you all knew that this religion went as far as India? And you go, well, how was it that this scattered from Babel onto other places? Because they had already practiced their religion. And when they scattered, they took with them their religion as well, including the worship of Semiramis and Tammuz and Nimrod. Go to the next slide, please. So they went to India. They also, this is the Aztec temple. How many of you have realized that the Aztec temple is the same way. And this is the Inca temple. Don't they look very similar to each other? And that's because they came from the same exact root. Go ahead and go to the next slide. And the next slide we also can see the pagodas of what we call China. This is a stone pagoda. And you can see the different levels that go into this one as well. It doesn't take a lot of imagination, but it does take truth. I had someone uh, 
Um, when I was visiting at one time uh, the what we call the Serpent Mound, which is up in uh, Locust Grove, Ohio, and someone said, man, I wonder what that really meant. I said, well, that's easy. I said, they believed that the serpent was pushing the ark to the dry land, and so all came from that ark, and they go, how do you know that? I said, the same image is in China, the same image is in Greece, the same image is all around the world. How many of you knew that? So we know things that are because they're written in the Bible that are automatically there, but we refuse to see it because we don't really accept what the Bible teaches us. Let's go to the next part. In the next part, we also see that there was the religion that allowed Madonna and child to go in. Now, this is, believe it or not, Semiramis and Tammuz. There it is, all the way back there. And when we take a look at Semiramis and Tammuz, don't you, how many of you can see Madonna and child with that? And yet, when you take a look at it, this also went into Egypt. This same religion went into India. Go ahead and go into the next slide, if you will, Brother Joe. It went into the Catholic version. It also went into the Incas. And it went into Mexican religion. Isn't that amazing? So when I tell people that these things are absolutely true, a lot of times people want to scoff at what I have to say about it. But the reality is it's there staring us right in the face. So when Babylon is fallen, please understand this. That means that this universal religion... Now, there's a lot of people that they turn around and go, well, is it really Babylon or is it going to be Rome? I don't know. And quite frankly, neither do you. But there is something of interest that I want you to see. How many of you all knew that Saddam Hussein, that when he lived upon the earth before he was taken was robbing the people and torturing them for their great wealth. I, I met I, I, a, a college professor friend of mine down in Somerset, Kentucky. He is literally missing all of the, all but the few nubs on his fingers. All of them. And all he had to do was, and they went in and they, they locked off each one at the knuckle. I'm serious. And all he had to do was to say, I, I will tell you where my family's wealth is if you will let me live. Because he would not give up his family's wealth. He literally was tortured. And he later on became a, a great teacher there at Somerset. When we also had another teacher that did not want to believe anything that, that was true. He, he wanted to believe a lie over the truth. And that caused him great problems. But here's the reason why Saddam Hussein wanted the wealth. He wanted to rebuild Babylon. How many of you all know that Babylon is partially rebuilt? I'll show you the images. So if you will, go ahead, Brother Joe, to the next one. The first thing we see is this is the Nebuchadnezzar Gate. Isn't that beautiful? That is the coloration. That is a direct picture of what we call the Nebuchadnezzar Gate. And literally there was an image. At one time there was an image of Saddam Hussein and Nebuchadnezzar. You had one imposed over the other so that it looked like Saddam Hussein was nothing more than Nebuchadnezzar reincarnate. And so one of the first things he did was had this gate rebuilt. But that's not all. Go ahead and go to the next slide. The next slide that we see is this is climbing up the Ziggurat of Ur. 
How many of you realize it was that close? Did you notice that he's already rebuilt it? How many of you knew that? Let's go to the next slide, if you will. The next slide shows this is part of the gates that have already been restored. That is actually gold leaf protecting every bit of that. Let's go to the next slide. When we also take a look at the different palaces that have been redone, I bring this to everyone's attention because nothing is impossible with God. If he wants Babylon to be restored, if he wants Babylon to be rebuilt, this is going to happen. Now, let's put it this way. In verse 9 it says, and the and third angel, excuse me, verse 8 of chapter 14 it says, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Believe it or not, Babylon has never fallen. Even when Darius, uh, when Cyrus and all of them, uh, the Mede Persians attacked Babylon, they left it intact. Mainly because it was such a beautiful and powerful city. It was a place of commerce. But, uh, but here's the thing. The Euphrates River is drying up, meaning that there is nothing to hinder people from coming from the east into this area and to destroy it completely. But notice it says, that great city, because she hath made all nations drink of her wine. Now, this is the part where a lot of people don't understand, and we don't really have time to delve in it completely. But I want us to see that this is a judgment that we find in the book of Revelation of all the things that are happening against Babylon. Now, the religion has moved forward. And there's a lot of people that say, well, how do you bring the two of them together? The book of Revelation chapter 12 and the book of Revelation chapter 14. Quite simply, is whatever the Antichrist wants, that's what he'll get. Now please understand that. Whatever he wants, that's what he will get. And we have to be aware that all these things are going to be originated from Babylon, and they may show up in other countries, but is it possible that they could return everything back to Babylon? My answer is yes. Anything is possible. So the Lord's willing, we're going to pick up there next week, and we're going to uh, take it from that point and the judgment that is about to happen from that particular point. All right, we're going to be dismissed in a final word of prayer, and then uh, let's get ready to go to our morning service. So, Lord, now I pray you will guide us and bless, and that you will protect us. Help us, dear Father, to understand the things that you have written in your word. For it's in Christ we pray. Amen. God bless.